Thank you, Pastor. Thank you once again. Boy, you come to a, an evening like this and your emotions are running rampant in every direction because we're so glad at what God has done this week and you hate to see it come to a close and yet you know that you just have to move on to other things in life. This church has a lot to get done in this area, in this place. And a lot of folks are running on their reserve tank of gas anyway. They need a chance to catch their breath again. And uh, it's just been a tremendous, wonderful week. And I know I can say that for every missionary here, that it has been a tremendous week of great blessing from this church. Some of you spoke about how we've been a blessing to you, but I assure you, you have been a tremendous, tremendous blessing to every one of us that's come in to be with you this week. It's been wonderful. May I encourage you in these days ahead, talking about uh, what goes on in our country and in our world today, may I encourage you to take good care of your pastor. I know of right now at least eight churches personally that are needing a pastor. They would love to have a pastor like what you have here. Take good care of them. They're getting fewer and fewer and farther between. And we need to appreciate what God has done. He's not Superman, you know. He's not Superman. He can't do that. Uh, You might think he's the Energizer Bunny. (laughs) He's not that either. He actually even once in a while takes naps. (laughs) Because he uh, has not always got that ball of energy going. Uh, He's just human as much as any one of us in this room. He's got energy more than some of us have, but uh, he's still just human. And his wife, take care of dear Erica and those children. Take care of them and love and and, uh, just care for them in the way that they need. Because there are pressures and things in the ministry that nobody can possibly imagine unless you've been in the ministry. And so do pray for them, love them to death, and just continue together in the good things that God has for you all right here in this place. Uh, we have so much that I, I could be saying. I, I'm so glad to see the Reisingers going to where they're talking about there in Uganda to uh, get away from the big city and out to that remote area that God has laid upon their heart because it's true that so many people do stay in the big cities. And, and yet out in the room, remote areas, he didn't talk about this, but they're living conditions and everything about the ministry is going to be more difficult. It's a lot easier. Not that it's easy at all, but it's easier in the bigger cities than where they're going to, going to go, where God has laid on their hearts, out in the remote areas. The Gambia, uh, a, a little country that's often overlooked and forgotten, right next to the country uh, Guinea-Bissau, where Dr. Albert Schweitzer did such an incredible work many years ago, right next to that, but yet still overlooked today. And we think about uh, uh, Brother Bui and his wife, Ketsia. By the way, for her name, if you haven't figured out where that name came from, just turn to the book of Job. Remember Job that lost his seven sons and three daughters. But God gave him back seven sons and three daughters. And one of those, she carries that name of that daughter. One of those names was Ketsia. Uh, there was Jemima, there was Ketsia, and then I don't remember the third one. But anyway, she wasn't named Jemima, she was named Ketsia. <laughs> so remember that that good Bible name is being carried faithfully today by her as she goes out with her husband to Indonesia. So remember these missionaries, pray for them, and may they be a part of your lives, a part of your lives from now on, from now on. But let's get into the Word of God, because I know we have a fellowship dinner, some snacks back there waiting for us, and I'm so glad to hear that, because 
we're just about to starve to death here this way. <laughs> and, and I'm staying with the, the judge. And if you think that a person can starve to death over there, then you just don't know them yet. It's not possible. We have been having a great time. The lunch we had together at the Smiths today and the other things going on, this has been a wonderful week. We hate to see it come to a close. But this afternoon as I went back to the judge's house and back to my room there and uh, tried to get before the Lord for a while, he directed my heart to a different passage that he wanted me to to treat this evening from what I was thinking of this morning. I want to talk about something that happened in the life of the Apostle Paul and just try to answer the question, what makes up a missionary? To get back to a message that's totally missions-minded this evening, uh, quite different from that this morning because this morning is, well, that's Sunday morning, it's different. But get back to the last message for this conference on a subject that's totally missions-minded, and that's getting back to the Apostle Paul and something that happened in his life. We'll see that in just a moment as we go back to the Lord in a word of prayer. If you would pray with me, please. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, how happy we are in looking back over these last few days together. And as we come to this last service this evening, our, our hearts are full. Our hearts are happy. We've been blessed. And we believe that the blessings of this week of conference are not going to finish tonight. They're going to go on and on and on. They'll go on for the missionaries that have come in here, and they'll go on for the people of the church that have had a heart for missions. Uh, This week, and the the week might come to an end, as far as this week of missions, but the blessings will not come to an end. The work will not come to an end. Uh, The the heart-touched friendship and fellowship and compassion together in the things of the Lord will not come to an end. As some have to hit the road and drive away and head to their next engagement and so forth, they'll be carrying a a heavy load of blessings on their hearts that they'll keep forever. They'll remember this. And we thank you for that. But right now, for this last time together in your word during this conference, we pray you'll speak to our hearts. If you don't help us, we won't understand. We've got to have your help. Show us something about what missions is all about and what we can be all about ourselves right here where you put us. We pray. In that precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn over to the book of Acts, if you will, please. Chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we'll be reading uh, the first nine verses to start with and talking about some very simple things here in a very well-known story in the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. What makes up a missionary? Some people don't know. You you realize that. that Some people don't know what makes up a missionary. I had a young fellow call me. He was an associate pastor in a church, and he'd only been there a few months, and the pastor left. And he had this church just sort of dropped on him, and and he would call the house. I was on furlough at that time, and I got to know him and been in the church. And so he would call the house, and he says, "Uh, Brother Abbott, I got this thing that came up. What should I do about this or about that? He just was fresh out of Bible college, and all of a sudden... He had this church dropped in his lap that he was trying to just help as interim until they could get a a regular pastor. He was associate, and that's what he felt like he should have stayed to do is be the associate. And and so we would talk, and we would talk, and I'd answer his questions as best as I could. And he was about to hang up one day after a call like that to the house where I was. And and he said, Brother Abbott, did I ever tell you that there was a time when I was thinking about maybe uh, pastoring a, a church in England And I said, well, no, Brother Tommy, I I didn't know you were ever interested in being a missionary. And there was a long silence. And he said, "Uh, but but, uh, I didn't say I was interested in being a missionary. I just wanted to pastor a church in England. I said, oh, 
well, Brother Tommy, I said, can you tell me the difference between a missionary and someone that pastors a church in England? What's the difference? He said, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, uh, and that's all he could do for the next 30 or 40 seconds. Uh, he, he couldn't think of a difference. And I tried to speak to him and talk to him and tell him that there's no difference between these gentlemen and this gentleman and what they're doing except where they are, the place. Oh, the culture will change. The language will change. The people will change. A lot of changes in, in the things around you, but the job is the same. Get people saved and into the house of God. Get them trained and growing up and, and into the things of God. Their job is the same, but the context around them is totally different. Yes, that's true, but the job is the same. The Savior is the same, and the burden is the same. What makes up a missionary? Let's see if we can figure that out tonight. As we look at what happened to the Apostle Paul here, You've had time to find your place in Acts chapter uh, 16, the first nine verses, if you will, please. <clears throat> Speaking about the Apostle Paul, it says that then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of uh, by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was, they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and the elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, there were for uh, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word of Asia and in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go unto Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Now, that's a story that you know, that what we call the Macedonian vision of the Apostle Paul. And I'd like to say very right away, right up front, very clearly, that a missionary is someone like the Apostle Paul is someone that saw something. A missionary is someone that saw something. Our friends here have shown some pictures of their trips to the different countries, whether it was the Uganda or other places. They've shown pictures that have come from when they were there, and they saw it, but they saw it before they got there. They saw it before they went there. They, they saw those places and those peoples and, and those faces before they boarded the plane, let alone got off the plane. A missionary is someone that saw something. Paul saw something that touched his heart. God gave him something special, very special. He didn't he doesn't do that all the time. He doesn't do that today to give us visions like he gave Paul. But he gave Paul one because he needed it. He knew through that Paul, we needed it. And so he gave it to Paul. What he saw gave him direction and it put him to work. The spiritually blind are indifferent and they see nothing. People who don't walk with God, don't care about God, don't care about the things of God, stay blind to the things of God. They don't see the things that somebody can see that's walking with God, just like yourselves. Because you can see the lost and dying up and down these roads around this church. You can see the lost and dying around you right here. You have a vision. You've seen something. 
Well, these missionaries have seen something. Before they ever stepped foot in the country, they saw something. And God used this to speak to them. I can never forget some of the things that I saw there on the field. And, and they will never forget either. When they go to the field and live with these people, they'll have things that will be engraved into their minds and into their hearts that will stay with them for their lives. They'll never forget them because of what they saw once they got there. But they saw things before they got there. But once they come back on their next furlough, should they be able to come here and visit with you on a furlough years and years down the road, they'll be able to tell you what they saw, the things that touched their hearts, the things that burdened their hearts. And they'll come back and they'll talk in a different way than they were able to talk even now. Because an occasional visit, uh, uh, two weeks or a month or even a couple months, it's different when you buy a round-trip ticket. It's totally different when you buy a one-way ticket to go to a country. And when you do that, buy a one-way ticket, and you go and you know you're there to stay for a good while and, and work for years to come before you return to the States, that changes everything. And when they come back to visit you down the road somewhere in the future, you'll find a difference there because of their experiences, what they've been through, what they've heard, what they've done, and what they've seen. Some things will never get out of your mind. Some of them will rejoice your heart and some of them will break your heart. But you'll see those things that will affect you every day that you live. I remember in our first church we started there in France, it was in the town of Sens, but we found a place to live in a little tiny village just stuck up right on Sens. It was the town of Saint-Clément on the outside edge of Sens. And, and to get into town, the main road had red lights and a lot of traffic. But after a while, I found a, a small, very small road that went through the backside of town and right through the middle of some farmer's fields and took me into the back way of town. There was much less traffic and much easier way to go. And that's very often the way I would go into town to get into downtown Sants. And one day I took off through those farmer's fields on that little road and I knew that there was no red lights, not much traffic, but there was one crossroad. As I went this way, there was one crossroad where they really went through fast, fast. And I had to always be careful when I came to that because you, the other guy always had the right of way, you might say. Whether he had it or not, they always took it. So you always had to really watch that intersection. As I came to that intersection that day, I saw ambulances and a fire engine and police cars and other cars parked all over the place. I said, well, they've had another one, and that must be a big one. They've got a lot of vehicles there. And as we inched our way and inched our way through and waited and waited until they finally flagged us through that intersection I could get through. I noticed over on the ground beside of me, I couldn't find a car that looked like it was in a wreck except one. But over on the ground in the grass, laying in the ditch or in a grassy patch on the right side of the road, was a blanket that somebody had laid over a young girl. And a crumpled up bicycle lay over to the side. I mean really crumpled up bicycle. And I don't know if they just didn't do it right or if that was the wind that had curled part of that blanket back. And here that lifeless young girl that looked to be about 12 or 13 years old lay there in that grass with a blanket over waiting for the coroner to come to give permission for them to take the body away. And there her leg stuck out from under that blanket and I could see that shoeless foot. The sock was still on. The shoe was laying on the grass. I saw it laying in the grass several feet away. I could see that brightly colored ringed sock on that foot of a bright young girl, about 12 or 13 years old. And there she lay lifeless on the ground. And I was thinking about the message that somebody was going to have to carry to some heartbroken parents in just a short matter of time. But also as I edged slowly past that spot, 
and looked at that blanket and that lifeless form there, I couldn't help but wonder, is that one that I missed? Is that one that I saw and that I met somewhere and somehow failed to give her a track? Failed to invite her to our children's club or in, to invite her to church? Is that one somewhere that I met somewhere, saw somewhere, knew in some way? I didn't know who it was, but I couldn't help but wonder, is that one that I missed? Is that one that I could have gotten and because I was indifferent or in a hurry or just didn't pay attention somewhere along the way? Was that someone I'd missed? You can't help but wonder about the ones you've missed. That's an image, and that was a sight from years ago that I can still see like it was yesterday because there will be things that come along in your life that you do see and you can't get away from them. They're there, and they impress you. And these people will come back from Uganda and these other places with images stamped, engraved, uh, uh, like a wood-burning set on their minds and in their hearts. And they'll stay there forever. They'll never till, if they live to be a hundred, they'll never get those images out of their minds of the things that God's going to bring their way. Paul saw something. He saw something. That's one reason why he was a missionary. Because God put an image, a vision in his heart, in his life. And said, no, it's not over here. It's not over there. There is where I want you to go. God gave him a vision. One time I, I was sharing a, a just sharing a verse with some friends at New Life there in Franklin. And it was Proverbs twenty nine eighteen that says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, the French Bible, you know, you can't always translate word for word. Our, our friends know that we'll, that we'll be learning other languages. You can't always just say, this word is that word, and this word is that word. And the French don't know how to say it exactly the way we do sometimes. And in their language, some words just don't exist. Others don't have the same meaning. And so that verse... In the French language, where there is no vision, the people perish, comes out, Il n'y a pas de révélation, le peuple est sans frein. Il n'y a pas de révélation, le peuple, that's the people, est sans frein. Sans frein is the way they translated perish, perish. And that means simply in English that where there is no vision, the people are without breaks. Now stop and think about the image that gives. Where there is no vision, the people are without brakes. Without brakes because I'm talking about brakes just like you would set the brakes on your car. In those days, it was in another way. And yet, where there is no vision on your part and my part, the people are without brakes because there's nothing to stop them. There's nothing to stop them. And that's exactly what happens when they go to perdition. That's when they're lost, where there is no Vision that people perish because there's no one there. There's nothing there to stop them. It's not the people that has to have the vision. It's you and I that have to have the vision. It was Paul that had the vision. You and I must have the vision. If the people perish, it's because we don't have the vision. It's not them that has to have a vision of their condition. They need to hear from you and I what their condition is really like according to the word of God. But if we don't do that, the people are without breaks. And after that service that night there at New Life, I don't know if he's still there, but he was at that time. Clifford Smith was there at that time, if you remember Clifford Smith. And he uh, uh, came up to me afterwards. He says, Brother Happett, he spent years in Mexico. He says, we have two different Bibles we use in Mexico, and one of them translates it one way, but the other Bible translates it exactly like that. In my Spanish Bible I used in Mexico that the people are without breaks. He says, just so you know, our Spanish Bible says it the same way, that the people are without breaks. Paul was a missionary because he saw something. 
We need to see something, folks. We need to see something. We, sometimes, what's that expression? Somebody said he, he was uh, eye, wide awake with his eyes shut. And sometimes that's the way we are. We're, we're asleep with our eyes wide open. <laughs> sometimes we're asleep with our eyes wide open. We need to have a vision and to see the world as God sees it. But that's not all that happened to Paul. Notice in uh, chapter 16 and verse 9 that we read just a moment ago. It says there in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. So Paul saw something, but also Paul heard something. Paul heard something. He heard something. He could hear the lost souls crying out, Come over and help us. And these missionaries that are here this week have something ringing in their ears, and it's not a music box somewhere. It's not a radio or something else. They have voices ringing in their ears. They have voices ringing in their hearts. And they can hear the people calling them. You can tell that when they speak about their fields of service where they want to go, that these people want to go and respond to that. They want to answer that call. They hear people calling them. <clears throat> Whether it's to Uganda or Nepal or wherever. It's, it's not just that. The others on the boards out there in the, in the lobby. These are people that have heard people calling, come over and help us. We need help. Would you help us? Paul heard something. He heard that voice saying, come over and help us. I mentioned the other day about that young man on the market, the way he came by my stand and that sentence that came out of his, his mind and his, his thoughts where he said, listen, sir, if ever I believe in God, it will be because of you. I've never forgotten that because I knew it was true before he said it, but it was so impressive to have a Frenchman, a lost Frenchman, that was so searching the truth and wanting the truth to say that to me because it, it, it just impressed me so much. I can't forget that because that was not only true for him, but for thousands of others about us. In our first church that we started there in France, after language school, we went about two hours and I researched this out. I went to a lot of places and researched. The Lord laid this place finally on my heart. The town of Sens. It was about two hours straight south of Paris. And one day I began to notice and see things around. And I, I looked into it and did more research. And I could take the town of Sens like this on a map. And I did that. I did it literally on a map. Laid out a large fold-out map. And with the town of Sens right there, I marked off about a one-hour's drive. A one-hour's drive straight east of Sons. Then I took a one hour's drive and I marked it off one hour west of Sons. I did one hour north and one hour south and I drew a circle around that with a two hour diameter across. A two hour diameter across. We were the only Baptist church anywhere in that circle. That we started from nothing. There was no church there at all until we went there to start that church. The only Baptist church there of any kind in that circle with a two-hour diameter, a two-hour diameter across. Yes, we heard voices. We heard voices. And we would have felt guilty if we had not listened to those voices. They say that David Livingston many times would stop in a, a village in a small place out in the middle of nowhere in the heart of Africa. And they say that one reason why he kept pushing on and pushing on and pushing on, he would say that he would be there in that village and, and teaching the word of God and doctoring the people and, and helping the people in every way that he could. He would have a group of, of national people with him that would travel with him. But after a while, he couldn't stand it any longer. He was there all this time helping those people and those people and the others. But they said that there were times that he would stand on the edge of the village and he would look way across there somewhere towards the mountains or the plains, way in the distance. 
and you see little plumes of smoke going up from a fire of a village somewhere where the, the villagers would have fires going and way in the distance he'd see plumes of smoke going up over here and he'd see way over yonder plumes of smoke going up there and he could look back this way and he could see another village he couldn't see the village but way in the distance he could see those plumes of smoke going up over there and he knew that everywhere he saw that there was a village that needed the gospel and that's why he couldn't stop and why he had to push on and push on and they say that David Livingston would stand there and look at those plumes of smoke but he could also hear because from one village to the other they were talking to each other with tom-toms and through the jungle in the the great distance he could hear those tom-toms boom 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 the messages that they were sending back and forth to one another. He could see those plumes of smoke and he could hear those tom-toms as they were talking to each other. And even though he could see those plumes of smoke, it might take him two or three days to, to get there through the dense jungles that they had. And yet he could not stay where he was forever because he, he kept compelled. He was constantly compelled to go on and on and on to reach that next village and then another village, then another village because he saw something. He heard something, and he couldn't stand still. He had to keep going for the Savior. Do you hear them calling? Do you hear them calling here where you are? Do you hear them calling down the road where you live? Do you hear them calling laying up there in the hospital bed with very little hope of seeing tomorrow? Do you hear them calling in your own family? Do you hear them calling there where you work? Do you hear them calling there at the school where you go? Do you hear them calling? Do you hear them calling? Paul was someone that saw something. He was someone that heard something. But also over in chapter 17, if you will, please, as we hurry along. In chapter 17, the two verses, 15 and 16. We're right next to it in chapter 17. We were at Acts 16, so just one or, one or two pages over, and you'll have Acts 17, verses 15 and 16. And here's what it says. We're talking now about Paul at Athens, and this is what happens. And they conducted Paul... They that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Let's just stop and think about that. You see, he saw something and he heard something, but now we see here that his spirit was stirred in him. I can honestly say that that Paul was someone that felt something. He was someone that felt something. His spirit was stirred within him. He couldn't stand it. He saw the idolatry going on around him there at Athens. He saw all these statues and these idols. He saw the people worshiping false gods, and he couldn't help but have his heart stirred. His heart was stirred. He was moved by the sight of these idols. He was not indifferent. He could not be indifferent. And he even had a justified irritation as seeing all of that. And we can understand that. When you're on the field and you're surrounded by them instead of us, because that's what it is. It's all them and not us. Here, we're us. Over there, they're them and we're the foreigners. We're the, the, the little blade of grass sticking up out of middle of nowhere. Uh, and when you're in that midst and you see all the things going on around you, you can't help but have your heart touched and moved by what you see. We should absolutely have our hearts touched. Oh, what a sad world where hearts can be so indifferent and hard that we aren't touched. We need to have a burden that can bring us even to tears if need be. Even to tears if need be. 
When we were in language school, we lived in a suburb of Paris. The language school was right in the heart of downtown Paris. So we lived in the, the suburbs there, in a place called Bois Colombes. And uh, I would go to school in the morning. I'd leave the house at 7 and run like crazy to the train station, get on the train and take it to the heart of downtown Paris, to the Gare Saint-Lazare, and get down into the subways and take the subway over to where the school was and uh, be in class from 8 to 12. And uh, then I would... Uh, make a beeline back to the subway to take me back to the train station and get back to Bois-Colombe and run to the apartment where my wife was waiting with the two children. And uh, I would take, run in the door and hang up my coat as she'd grab her coat and throw it on and take off to go do the same thing. She watched the children in the morning. I watched them in the afternoon. While she ran to class and spent her afternoon in, in the classes, she'd make a beeline on the same exact line I took in the morning to get to class and get back home. And yet I remember one day after I'd been in school just uh, for a few days. Now, the verse that I knew would help. All these masses of people. Paris has about 5 million people in it. And there's another 5 million in that circle of towns that's right up on the top of Paris. So you're talking about a conglomeration of 10 million people. And I got home to the apartment, our little three-room apartment that another missionary helped me find so we'd have a place to live and get started. And, And I remember coming in one day and hung up my coat kissed her goodbye as she grabbed her coat and took off for language school. Got our two children down for a little bit of an afternoon nap. I was thinking about all this emotion that was sweeping over me like the waves just pounding on the beach. I grabbed a towel off the rack in the bathroom, sat down in a chair and bawled like a baby. I buried my face in that towel and just bawled and bawled and bawled. Here were millions of people around me. And I couldn't say one word. I couldn't say one word. I knew how to say bonjour, but I didn't know how to say au revoir. <laughs> I couldn't say one word. I couldn't quote John 3.16. I, I could have tracks in my pocket I got from the missionary. I didn't even know how to say, here, would you please take this? Uh, nothing. When I went to the store to get a stick of bread or a, quart, a, a liter of milk, all I could do was just point and say, uh, uh. <laughs> that, that, that is the French word for one. I learned that. Un, deux, trois. It sounds like a grunt, but it's really the French word for one. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq. So, I mean, it sounds like a grunt. I could just point and say, un, you know. And they'd give me one, whatever it was. And I knew that wasn't much. That wasn't much. Because I was so moved by what I saw around me that it gripped my heart so bad that finally, finally it caught up with me and I had to just sit down and ball it out. Just ball it out. Sometimes in life, that's good for you, to be able to ball it out. Sometimes that'll help us if we can just ball it out. I know it helped me that day, but we've got to have people that can, can have their hearts touched and moved by what we see. Indifference is a plague upon our nation. People only like what they like. They only like the NFL or this or something else, all these stupid things that mean nothing but the things that count. People aren't touched by them. The things that make a difference, people aren't touched by them. Adoniram Judson went to Burma those many years ago with his wife, Anne, and spent six years before he ever had one convert. Six years before ever having a convert, but he had a baby boy to die on him there. And then he was in prison for nearly two years just because he was a, a foreigner that they didn't want to have. And soon after he got released from prison, his wife, Anne, and his daughter, Maria, died of the spotted fever. He still didn't have a convert yet. Still didn't have a convert yet. After all those years of laboring and working, his boy died, his wife died, his baby Maria had died, 
He was in prison for two years in the most miserable, filthy, and incredible prison you can imagine. And yet, he made the statement that I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. That was his statement. I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. We need people that can be, can have their hearts touched, that can feel something. He felt something, and it wasn't pity. What he felt was not pity. It, it wasn't uh, something that he was looking for for himself. He was still looking for something for the Burmese people. But let's close our thoughts this evening as we come to a close. In Acts 17, where we are, in the two verses, 22 and 23, there's one last thing that, that happened to the Apostle Paul. Yes, he did see something. Yes, he did hear something. Oh, yes, he certainly did feel something. So what good is all of that if we don't see what happened in verses 22 and 23? Uh, here in chapter 17, 22 and 23, then, as Paul saw all of this and was moved within him because of what we just saw, Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And he preached. He preached. He preached the gospel of Christ in the verses that are following. You'll find the message that he preached. So we can safely say that after all these other things, Paul did something. Paul did something. What good does it do to see something if you don't do something? What good does it do to hear something if you don't do something? What good does it do if you feel something if you don't do something? We must be people that will do something about what's going on. We must be people that know how to do something to heal the sick and and to cause folks to, I'm talking about spiritually sick, to find the healing that they need because of what Christ can do for them. Oh, yes, my dear friends, we need people today that will do something. Not criticize. That's not the doing that we need. Not to throw rocks at others and throw the blame here and there when things aren't just perfectly the way we want. That's not what we're talking about, doing something. He said, oh, ye men of Athens, you, you worship all these fake gods. Let me tell you about the one and true real God. And he preached the gospel to him. Yes, he did something. But he did the right thing, the good thing, the thing that we all need to be doing. You know, years ago, the Moravian brethren left Europe to go as missionaries around the world. And uh, when they left Europe and went to many different places, the South Pacific and others, but when they arrived in the Caribbean, if you can imagine such a thing, when they arrived in the Caribbean... They went to some of the islands in the Caribbean, the Moravian Brethren. And they approached the, many times in those days, the whole island belonged to certain slaveholders. There were slaveholders that owned the island. They worked for them. They had their plantations and all the rest. And these, these uh, slave owners were the owners of the island, so you could do nothing unless you got permission from them. And the Moravian brethren went to some of these islands and said, we'd like to come and bring the gospel and take the gospel to your slaves and take the gospel to the people that you've brought here to work for you. And to, to anybody here on the island, this is what we want to do. The slave owners told on several different islands, you can't do that here. That will interrupt our work. That will bother us here. You cannot do that. We can't have outsiders coming in and doing what you want to do. They refused permission to come to the islands. So on several different islands in the Caribbean, the Moravian brethren said, here's a, a deal we'll make with you. If we sell ourselves to you as slaves, will you let us preach 
to the other slaves during the off times when we're not working. And there were several islands where the owners of those islands accepted that deal and allowed the Moravian brethren to come in and sell themselves to them. He said, now you'll be a slave like anybody else. You'll work in the fields like anybody else. You'll work the rest of your lives like anybody else. As long as we want you, you're my slave forever and ever and ever. But on your free times, yes, under those conditions, you'll not get paid. You'll have a hut to live in. You'll have whatever food we give you to eat. You have no pay, no nothing. You'll be like the rest of the slaves. But yes, you can take the gospel, your gospel. They knew what the gospel was to some degree during the off times, the off hours and the, the days when they're not working. And they did it. A number of them did it through the different islands of the Caribbean, sold themselves as slaves for the rest of their lives. So those slaves that were there for the rest of their lives could hear the gospel. They did something. They really did something. We need people today that will do something for the cause of Christ. Have you ever really seen anything that God has opened up before you right around here? Have you heard their voices calling to you and saying, could you help me? Have you ever felt anything that moved you to where you just have to do something? You have to do something. I believe this church is known for that type of heart, that type of spirit. You know, there's always a way that we can just step, take a step forward, do a bit more. Now, I believe that somewhere amongst us this evening, there's maybe someone that was saying, you know, I, I've not been paying a good attention. I've not been paying very close attention. I've not been looking. I've not been listening. I've certainly not been feeling. But from now on, I want, with God's help, for him to, for him to show me how I can do something to get people to Christ, get people saved. I'm so glad that years ago, when I come from a family where my mom and dad, when I was 12 years old, I have no memory ever, ever of going to church with my mom and dad. They never did that. That's something they never did. But we lived in, outside of Belleville, Michigan, about 20 miles for about four years, about 20 miles or 20 minutes outside of town on an old dirt road. There was our house and a farm next door and a farm right there. And across the road in that farm, there was a boy about my age by the name of Mac. And he says, Sunday morning, uh, you know, why don't you hop on this old bus with me and go into town? And uh, I said, well, what, what are you doing in town? And he said, oh, just hop on the bus and we'll see. I, I, never, I didn't know what that was. My mom and dad let me go with him. I don't know why. I'm surprised they did. But I got into town and I was so upset. I was really upset. I was irritated because I thought this is great. Got a free bus ride into town. They'll bring me home and I won't have mom and dad on my back. I can run around town and enjoy myself. You know, I got there and they herded me like so much cattle into this thing they called a Sunday school class. <laughs> it was a church bus. He didn't tell me that. <laughs> I didn't even know what a church bus was or what a church was. I didn't know anything. At 12 years old, I was totally empty on things of the gospel. But in that Sunday school class, I was 13. When a fellow by the name of Jay Troutman, Jay Jordan, Jay Troutman. I remember I was 13 year old, years old and I raised that hand when he asked who needs to accept Christ in his heart to save his soul because there was a bus driver by the name of Mr. Kidd, because there was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Jay Troutman, because there was a, a pastor of the church that had a heart for kids named Kenman, Kenneth Crawford, Ken Crawford, because someone had a vision, and they could hear, and they could see, and they could feel. This little boy came to Christ at the age of 13. Then I remember the Sunday morning when I was sitting over here with my buddies, and I saw my dad come down the aisle. 
And he went this way. They were after him, pestered him to death till he finally came to church one time. And after a few times at church, I saw him come down the aisle and got about here and he motioned to the pastor. Brother Crawford went over there in the corner of that pew over there. And my dad knelt down and let Christ into his heart and saved his soul. How happy I am today that there's people that are willing to do something. Who's waiting for you out there? Who's waiting for you? To teach a class? To drive a bus? To make some visits? Who's waiting for you today? There's some of them out there, and may I tell you, you'll never have a greater, greater joy in all your life than with God's help, one of those enter into the family of God because you did something. Brother Henry, would you come?